tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, so much for tuning in. Quick note before we get this train rolling, uh, we are doing a two-part episode. You're hearing this on a Thursday. Part two is on a Tuesday. So this is our shout-out to the weekend, not the singer. You know what? No, the singer. Too. Everybody's Let's working. shout them out. For the weekend, sure, what? them too. Them too. What, Why does he spell his name that way? He leaves out like mm-hmm. an, an E, and 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 what the week N N D week? Yeah, W E E K N D. Right, the E isn't in there. The E is silent. He's in but, too but much of a hurry for the vowels. You know what I mean? They save the time spelling the name and pass the savings on to you. Uh, speaking of saving the show, shout out to our super producer, Mr. Max Williams. What, what? They call me Ben. Noel, we're working for the weekend. We, we yeah, it's, but it's but it's Tuesday, so we got we got a ways to go. Unfortunately, I hope mm-hmm. the weekend is okay. By the way, he always he sounds so sad in his songs, and yet he sees he's achieved such success, such a meteoric rise. I hope he can just take a step back and enjoy what he's created for himself, and 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 you know cheer up a little bit. I'm uh waiting for his next album. We were talking about this last time I was hanging out with him. It's uh called TGIF. Thank God it's Friday. By the weekend, it's all it's all reworkings of uh, of 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 nineties sitcom themes. The ones that describe mm-hmm. the Working plot nine of the to show. Five. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I talked mm-hmm. about this previously on sitcoms. I love this. Oh no, wait, I don't know if it was this show, but uh, we're not talking about sitcoms today. Though I would watch a sitcom <sighs> yes. about our protagonist. There is something you may have heard of once upon a time. Some call it vibes. Great film. Some call it a connection. Great film. Yes, agreed. And one guy called it Orgone. Today is part one of our story on the one and only Willem Reich. 
Wilhelm Reich and the sexual revolution, baby, that uh, many uh, thinkers, um, philosophers, thought leaders credit this man with starting uh, in no small part. And I did not quite realize that he was such an acolyte of Freud, who also gets yes. a lot of credit for, you know, um, starting the idea of thinking about where our sexual urges lead us uh, in terms of our mental progression or lack thereof stuntedness, I suppose, uh, arrested development, all of that. But yeah, folks from, you know, as far afield uh, in terms of their work as James Baldwin uh, to Susan Suntog to Kate Bush, one of my favorite artists of all time, um, have read and written and kind of digested Wilhelm Reich's work and kind of made it their own. We're going to get to all of these luminaries and how Reich kind of affected their work, you know, as we go through this two-parter. Also, huge shout out to research associate extraordinaire Zach Williams. He really, um, you know, went above and beyond for this one. This is a subject that we've covered briefly in our early episode about a, a scam a rainmaking scam. Uh, we talk about Reich just in terms of his contribution to the idea of cloud seeding, cloud busting, uh, in fact. And we also have talked about this and guy I, extensively. I covered it extensively. Stuff they don't want you to know back before uh, back before it was YouTube, when it was just Apple Video, uh, ah, yes. or whatever they called it back then. Uh, also, in our audio episodes for the show, when we started doing podcast there but you're right we have a uh, we have a closeness with this man dare i say a vibe um and it it is true we have to remember in his time he was born just on the cusp of the 20th century right he's born in march of 1897 we have to remember that during this time uh and during the time he was active there were many uh let's call them pioneers of thought right for good or for ill would you agree with that absolutely yeah and again like we mentioned freud uh we are going to hear einstein wing and at some point this is an important era in thought leadership beyond science. This really is the birth of kind of psychology, which uh, many would have, you know, kind of maligned as being a pseudoscience at the time. It was not always um, thought of uh, kindly by the scientific community. But uh, we're going to we're going to explain, you know, how Wright kind of yeah, he pushed the boundaries of that to a degree. But you're right, Ben. He was born March 24th, 1897 in Dobrozinia, uh, which was a part of uh, Galatia, which sounds like a made up place, like from uh, 1984 or something. But it's not. sounds like it's uh, from Princess Bride. Yeah. That's right. You may not have heard of it, though, because at the time uh, that belonged to the Austrian Empire, I don't know that it exists anymore. But after his birth, his family, which was quite well to do, they moved to what you could maybe compare in, in American uh, equivalency uh, to a ranch. Uh, and this was in the Ukrainian uh, part of Austria. Uh, and that is where um, Reich's father started to, he became a cattle rancher for specifically the government, the German government. And this was a pretty mm -hmm. relatively high post, even though the idea of being a cattle rancher, you know, we know that uh, Hannibal Lecter would have looked down his nose at that, but uh, it was kind of a big deal. This put them in an upper echelon of German society. I think he looked down on on shepherds, right? It's the silence well, it was, of the lambs, not the silence yeah, well, they, of the, they were the ranchers. cattle. They, 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 well, they were they were lambs. We'll have to, they were. We'll have to ask him. <laughs> we'll have to Here. have Hannibal Lecter on the show. Anthony Hopkins, you were disinvited to Ridiculous History. You can only show up as your character, Hannibal Lecter. And we also want to shout out, by the way, uh, David Elkind 
from the New York Times who wrote an excellent article back in 1971 called Phil M. Reich, The Psychoanalyst as Revolutionary. This goes into his early life in depth, and it's uh, very well worth the read. Now, yes, you're right. The the family was well-to-do, relatively speaking, and they had Jewish heritage, but if you ask them out there on the uh, official German government cattle ranch, they would identify more with German culture. Wilhelm and his brother were not allowed to play with the poor kids in the neighborhood. Uh, they also, looking back, the brothers did not appear very close to each other. They were sort of alone in the crowd of their family. And since we're being a little Freudian, folks, and since we're talking a little bit about psychoanalysis, we have to say that this is not us saying it. Some people would say that Reich's familial dynamic had an effect on him later in life. His dad was sort of domineering and a bit of a tyrant, and his mom was sort of cowed by him. And when Reich was young, when he was an adolescent, his mom had an affair with one of the tutors living with the family. And it was pretty common for well-to-do families back then to have tutors, right? To have kind of these au pairs or these instructors rather than sending your kids to school. And there's an interesting line in the New York Times article. It's interesting. That's why I shout out Elkins here the author of that article, because he says, this is a quote, he says, it is likely that Reich bore some responsibility for his father's discovery of the affair and for his mother's subsequent suicide. And Reich goes on to be uh, married several times throughout the course of his life. And one of his spouses, his third spouse, Ilse Ollendorf Reich, will later write that she believes Reich may have felt some responsibility for his mother's death. And this may have been uh, one of the things that stopped him from completing what she called his own analysis. Like there were things he could never fully process after that moment. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it's it's a lot to to contend with. And it's the kind of these kind of things that carry, follow us from childhood into adulthood that uh, we sometimes can never fully deal with or process uh, unless we meet them head on. Sometimes it's very difficult to do. Uh, and that is where therapy is a very important thing. But um, it wasn't necessarily something that he, as the analyst or as the therapist, maybe was willing to uh, look inwardly upon. Um, but, you know, we'll get to more of that in a bit as well. Um, so he actually joined the military um, during World War One. He was an Austrian army officer, um, and he served in Italy. And again, Elkin writes for the New York Times that he 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 liked it. He seemed the, the military life seemed to suit him. He was a man of many, um, let's just say, exuberances. You know, he he had a lot of gusto and, and get up and go. He was able to kind of give that a home. You know, with some of this uh, this kind of military life, this regimented military life. Um, he was very intuitive. Any skill that he sought, he could he could pick up pretty easily. I think we all know people like that, where it's like borderline obnoxious. But like he could ride a horse. Uh, he like you know he picked it up instantly. Um, and wait, he, you he think runs. it's obnoxious when people are talented? 
not yes. obnoxious. It's just like when people, when there are some people that are just good at everything without very much effort. Uh, I, I say this, you know, half jokingly, but yeah, I mean, it's like, oh, must be nice, you know, to just be able to be like naturally gifted at all the things. It's like, leave some for the rest of us. No, you're not going to say it. So I want to say, yeah, it's so annoying. Like you have that thing that you've been working on for a long time. Then like a buddy of yours is like, oh, that's interesting. And then like three weeks later, they're better at it than you. And it's like, I've been working on this for four years and you're already better than me. <laughs> Maybe I need to work on this with a therapist also. Yeah. Well, I think we're probably going to all find some things that are going to bubble up about ourselves in this one. But yeah, skiing, you know, horseback riding, uh, piano, you know, uh, art. Um, he was also obviously very, very gifted in academics. So as the person in Ridiculous History who is uh, not angry at other people doing well, let me shout out Wilhelm. He did some awesome stuff. He didn't find his true north right away. And this is something we see with many, uh, many people who are kind of, like you guys said, kind of always talented at stuff, right? Their question becomes, am I a jack of all trades, master of none? What is my true calling? First Reich tries law. He tries the legal world and he finds that it is boring. So he switches to the medical world. And uh, this is, you'll love this, Max. This is the moment where he takes a six-year program in med school and finishes it in four years and he, uh, he supports himself during the last few years by tutoring his fellow students. This is also where he meets his first spouse, Annie Pink. They marry in 1921. Yes, that's pink like a, the color. And uh, Pink would go on to become an, a, a well-known analyst in her own life. But we need to backtrack a little before he meets Annie. Picture the meet cute rom-com moment they have and then just rewind in the uh, ridiculous history cinema of the mind to a pivotal moment that occurs just a few years earlier. He's still a student. It's 1919. But Noel, this is the crossroads moment, hashtag Bone Thugs and Harmony, where Reich attends a lecture that will change his life. He sits in on a little TED Talk of the time about psychoanalysis, and he is into it. He is 10 toes down on this. He is so intrigued that he immediately decides he is going to be a psychiatrist. Yeah, I mean, because again, this is kind of like the early days of this, uh, this discipline, and I've always kind of found psychiatry to be sort of an interesting combination of like medicine and philosophy. You know, it's like mind science of the mind or whatever. Like it, it is, it does, it, it kind of combines a lot of disciplines. And then him being this guy that was sort of all over the place in the stuff that he was interested in, you know, from art to, to philosophy to various academic studies, this made sense that it would kind of be this sort of fusion of a lot of things into one relatively new field. Not to mention that he was kind of a cutting edge guy. And it was like, okay, I want to get on the ground floor of this. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so you're right. Um, it was something that really grabbed him right away. He was asking very profound questions that he himself had been asking. Uh, he found the, the, the study to be challenging and less kind of, you know, paint by numbers than something like medicine or the law. Um, this was a very good fit for him. So he decided to pursue that 
with gusto. Uh, and because of that kind of, you know, enthusiasm that he put forth, it was noticed. And then he was very quickly admitted uh, to the Vienna Psychoanalytic Society and started seeing patients pretty quickly. And this would certainly be frowned on today, but before he completed his medical training. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet... Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, let's talk a little more about Freud, because Freud influences Reich well before he um, gets associated with the psychoanalytic society. Freud thought the world of Reich. He looked at him and said, this guy has potential, at least in the beginning. We'll get there, folks. In the 1920s, and this comes from The Guardian, a wonderful article by our pal Olivia Lang. We haven't met Olivia, but we love the way she writes. Reich kind of does something heretical, right, to the Viennese school of thought at the time. He's listening to his patients speak, and he keeps looking at their body language, basically. They're laying on the couch or the chaise lounge, and they are rigid. They're guarded. 
And he thinks maybe there's something else they're trying to communicate. Perhaps it is not something one can articulate in words. Maybe, he thinks, Freud isn't going far enough. Maybe the past is not just hiding Ooh. in your memories, your verbal, like the memories you can vocalize, but maybe it's also hidden physically. Maybe your, your, um, your distress, your past experiences are somehow stowed away in your body. Almost like a battery, you know, can store electricity. Uh, he, he felt that this, these emotions um, manifested themselves as energy, as some sort of almost electrical current. I'm sort of editorializing here, but definitely a form of energy that could be in some way stored in the body and possibly harnessed or re you know, um, directed, diverted. Um, and this was sort of like this, this aha moment really was kind of the, um, the genesis of, of his later, some would say more, uh, out there, you know, studies. Yeah. Yeah. We, it's strange because he senses a tension in people and he says, maybe this is a defensive move Maybe this is some sort of instinct towards self-preservation. Maybe someone is trying to restrain their anxiety, their rage, their anger, their sorrow, their sexual excitement. Uh, and he thinks, if you are in a place where these emotions are repressed or where they are traumatic or very upsetting, then the only alternative in his mind is that the patient must tense up and try to bottle it down, right? Deep inside. Why are you so tense? Why are you so rigid? That's just how I stand, man. Uh, and uh, he believes that this shows evidence in the physicality of the patient. So he starts working with the patient's bodies. Now, at this point, he's verging into territory which is completely forbidden in psychoanalysis. He starts talking with patients about their bodies, their body language, and then he starts physically touching them. And surprise, surprise, at least in Reich's opinion, when he is physically touching folks, he starts putting his hands on what he sees as the physical expression of these emotions, right? Expressions of fright, clenched fist, you know, tensed shoulders, that sort of stuff. And he believes that by touching them, he can bring these feelings to the surface, the physical and emotional surface, and release them. And it's a lot like um, memory regression, almost. You know, he feels that patients are experiencing memories they had kind of forgotten, and they would release them upon this physical stimulation. This is true. And when they released those feelings, when they process that stuff and let it out, they would have something that uh, that Wright called streaming, which is not a subscription service online. It's a pleasurable, rippling feeling. Yeah, a, I mean, there's a lot of parallel 
thought here um, that, that I think we, we both see the idea of tension, you know, carrying stress in the body, um, you know, that aligns with a lot of like kind of holistic uh, me- me- medicine and, and massage therapy and things like Reiki and energy work and, you know, other things that maybe are not fully embraced all the time by the scientific community. Even parts of Scientology, the idea of storing these like thetans or whatever, these like weird dead ghosts. Uh, sorry, spoiler alert for anyone that hasn't made it down the bridge yet. Um, but that stuff's been online for years. Up the bridge. Um, down the bridge, up the bridge. But yeah, it, it, there is some parallel, you know, kind of stuff going on here. Um, the idea that these energies stored in your body or in your muscles or, you know, are in some way a sign of repression of, of holding on to things and that they can, you know, get worse. Um, even just like, you know, tensions in your muscles that can be relieved by, you know, pressure points and things like that. I mean, it's all kind of a similar ball of wax here. I think it's really interesting. Freud, on the other hand, he was not about the touchy touchy. Um, he was much more into, you know, the pure psychoanalysis. And then he believed that it all needed to be, uh, you know, on a purely um, talking kind of talk therapy, uh, the talking cure kind of modality, I guess. So in 1926, he wrote uh, that he was a little bit on the fence about, you know, what Reich was doing. So Freud was, he wasn't really against uh, Reich's methods, but he, he wasn't necessarily coming out in full support of them either. He clearly gave, you know, some sort of tacit, like, okay, well, you should try to explore this more uh, for the the more kind of base level methods that Reich was exploring, but some of the more extreme methods he actually you know fully kind of withheld uh his his support for and then by the way we've got another great article to cite here the scientific assassination of a sexual revolutionary how america interrupted wilhelm reich's orgasmic utopia uh by jason louv uh from motherboard Mm -hmm. yeah out of vice yeah this is the thing right now at this period of time in the 1920s or so, Freud is a big deal. And if Freud likes you, that's great for your career. If Freud says you're middling, that's middling for your career. And God forbid, Sigmund have a problem with your work or, you know, what you see as your work. He didn't really take this streaming. So the psycho analytic community at this time, which we have to remember is pretty young. Uh, they say, accidental pun, they're not J-U-N-G, they're Y-O-U-N-G. Thank you, Max. I appreciate your support. Uh, so, the, uh, so the thing is, because Freud is objecting to some of uh, Reich's thoughts here, the overall community, which uh, of which Freud is an integral part, the other psychoanalysts, they, they start saying, okay, well, let's dismiss Reich here. He's not on the same page, the same therapist couch as us. Things start to get worse and worse for Wilhelm It's 1926. He's trying to deal with the backlash of his community saying, hey, you're a bit heretical. You're a bit crazy. And he asked Sigmund Freud to psychoanalyze him. He's like, Sigmund, big bro, 
maybe you can help me. Maybe you can help me figure out where I have misstepped. And this guy, who very much is like a father figure to Willem, he says, uh, no, can't do it. Uh, we don't know whether it's scheduling or a flat-out refusal, but this really cut right to the core. And then right after that, his brother dies of tuberculosis. Wright gets tuberculosis. He has to go to a sanitarium in Davos, Switzerland. This just like, it feels like this is a um, a cavalcade of catastrophes. We promise it gets a little better. But right now, he's in a sanitarium. He gets radicalized. I found this interesting, Noel. He joins the Communist Party, and then he becomes an activist. That's right. And he, you know, he was never really that guy, per se. He was more into his studies than he was into politics. You know, he never really seemed to take a particular stance politically up until this point. But after witnessing some horrific violence uh, at the hands of police during the uh, the July revolt of 1927 in Vienna, where he saw police kill, uh, shoot and kill 84 workers and injure an another 600, he decided that there was something very, very, very off uh, about this or this organization of, of, you know, power dynamic in the world. And he decided that he needed to speak out against it. He believed that the police were uh, inherently a, uh, an occupying force, you know, very similar to a lot of the, you know, defund the police kind of movement uh, that we see today, you know, around a lot of police brutality. So he was very much ahead of ahead of the curve there, uh, as he was with a lot of things. He, uh, Vice, uh, this Vice article described him as thinking that the police weren't only brutal, uh, he observed, but they were robotic, as if in a trance, uh, and also armored. So nothing worse than robots uh, in a trance that have guns. Well, think about it, because it, it goes back to his original finding, right, where he strayed from the path of established psychoanalysis. They're moving like robots. Their physicality is affected, perhaps by some emotional trauma or repression. That's where Reich's thoughts are headed, and he is, he is now pulling demonstrations in the streets. He is thinking about all of these factors and he's doing a Charlie Day, always sunny in Philadelphia conspiracy board, you know? So picture, picture young Vili, I'll call him. <laughs> and he's, he's saying, you know what? Economic repression, sexual repression, it's all related, man. It's all connected. This goes all the way to the top and the bottom. And I, he says, am opening a series of clinics throughout Vienna. And I, you know, I recently went to Austria uh, for a thing and it's nuts how, um, it's nuts how Freud is treated or regarded versus mm. Willem Reich. And we're about to see why his clinics that open up scandalizing established psychoanalysis. They say, look, we'll give you the psychoanalysis you've come to love and expect, we will also give you some sex ed. And we will also supply contraceptives uh, to young and working class people. Interesting. I didn't know this at the time. Back then, uh, the folks who consider themselves more liberal would say, yes, you can have contraception, but only if you're already married, if you're in wedlock. 
That's kind of nuts, right? Doesn't it sound is. too it, liberal. It, no, it's interesting though that you mentioned too, Ben, that like this, he was getting pushback from the psycho analytical community, uh, which was already kind of a controversial field. So he was sort of like the next level in, in controversy uh, surrounding this field. And he was sort of pushing the envelope even farther than, than those folks, the more, you know, established psychoanalysts were willing to do. And obviously it was very popular and it was very like in vogue at the time, but it was also, uh, you know, seen by some as dangerous. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. They're playing with live fire and this community is exploring things that were considered maybe off limits or forbidden uh, in polite conversation. And Reich moves from Austria to Germany. He moves to Berlin in 1930. And uh, fellow history enthusiast, you know that there was something evil brewing in Berlin at this time, it's the rise of the Nazi party. And Reich, um, Reich is continuing to write and explore his theories, and he's showing them to his colleagues in the Communist Party and various communist organizations, but they're not super into it. And he keeps making, um, I don't want to say making enemies, but he keeps sort of burning professional bridges because he's just too controversial. Uh, he has this contract with a publishing outfit, the International Psychoanalytic Publishers. They cancel the deal because uh, he goes a little further with sex ed than they are used to or comfortable with. He says, look, we're not going to do abstinence-only education for teens, for teenagers. Instead, we're going to talk to them bluntly about sex and sexual interactions and contraceptives. Yeah, it reminds me of Kinsey. I think this is roughly around the same time. He might have even been a little later, but, um, you know, the American, um, you know, sex psychologist, I guess, uh, he proposed a lot of these same things, but I think a little bit later, and even then, he was persona non grata in a lot of circles. So this was absolutely above and beyond uh, what society was willing to uh, to to bear. And of course, it's easy to spin some of this stuff out of context. The idea that he was advocating for, you know, young people having sex. It wasn't exactly what he was doing. He, he was advocating for young people to understand their bodies and to, you know, have access to things that would allow them to have sex if they so choose without consequences, without getting getting pregnant. Or I don't know that even STDs were, were part of it as much at this time or the conversation, but it was more about just, you know, having access to information than it was about encouraging some sort of like sexual free-for-all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he, he points out that there's a bit of a uh, hypocrisy or at the very least, there's a bit of uh, contradictory messaging that young people are receiving at this time in Europe. In 1932, he makes this pamphlet called the sexual struggle of youth. And it's his sort of condemnation of current society and the ways in which it makes it difficult for adolescents to navigate <laughs> these huge changes in their lives. And I think that's a valid point. He's saying, hey, these kids need help, right? And we have a quote from him. I'm not going to do a voice for it, but just so you get a sense of the flavor of this, 
He says, young people are contaminated on the one hand by moralizers and advocates of abstinence and, on the other hand, by pornographic literature. Both influences are extremely dangerous, the former no less than the latter. And at this point, he's 27. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet... Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, mind mind blowing to me. Whenever I I read that, it's just wow, this guy's really ahead of the curve. Um, but that 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 one part of the quote that you'd read, Ben, the idea of pornographic literature, uh, that's really important because you know, as pro sex and sex positive as uh, Reich was, he was vehemently anti pornography. He thought that was like a toxic influence um, and, and not something that was beneficial in any way, shape, or form, that it was a repressive force rather than a liberating force. Mm-hmm. And he was also against the concept of monogamy. He, he argued against monogamy. So yeah, he said, uh, he said you should have lasting, loving relationships that are held together by affection rather than legal constraints. And he said, you know, if you try to do anything else, you're going to get tired of each other, basically. Mm -hmm. The phrase he uses is sexual dulling. 
Yes. Indeed. I feel like I have to say sexual. Sexual. There. Yeah, no, you absolutely do and did uh, beautifully. Um, he also was very, uh, it was very, he was a feminist. I mean, he, he felt that women were kept down by economic dependence, you know, on men mm. and that it caused mm. them to be kind of uh, essentially like, you know, in a, in a, in a carrying forward of the old ways put into these kind of forced marriages or arranged marriages, even if they weren't politically arranged, they oftentimes were. I mean, if, if wealthy families would, would very oftentimes kind of force, you know, their families to be united and there wasn't much choice. It wasn't the same as like, you know, in like House of the Dragon or whatever, but it definitely uh, had a, a an air of that kind of like, you know, I will wed my firstborn first of his name to Marjorie of house, you know, whatever, uh, you know, down the street. And, you know, moneyed people wanted to marry their kids off to moneyed people so that they could carry on the legacy of money um, and, and the idea of a bloodline or whatever. That is not something that has even gone to this day. Yeah, yeah. And he is uh, he is one of those guys who is proposing the idea that it takes a village, Right. Like, if you have more parent figures, uh, if you have more caretaker figures in a child's life, maybe you can help save them from some of the crazy stuff. You know, it reminds me of this wonderful Philip Larkin poem. It's a wonderful poem with a terrible name. It's called This Be the Verse, Because We Are a Family Show. We're going to have some beeps here, courtesy of Mr. Max Williams. Here's the poem. And this is something Reich would agree with. They f*** you up, your mom and dad. They may not mean to, but they do. They fill you with the faults they had and add some extra just for you. But they were f***ed up in their turn by fools in old style hats and coats who half the time were soppy stern and half at one another's throat. Man hands on misery to man. It deepens like a coastal shelf. Get out as early as you can and don't have any kids yourself. <laughs> Philip Larkin, I feel like I feel like Reich would agree with him because he's worried, like you're saying, Noel, he's worried about this intergenerational trauma, right? That's what we would call it today. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and we've talked about the idea of intergenerational trauma or even, what is it, uh, epigenetics, the idea of mm -hmm. trauma that can be carried, you know, in the genes generationally, um, not just things that you witness while you're alive. Um, it actually can have, you know, again, this is also kind of a, of a, of a modern day burgeoning sort of, of discipline, but it's uh, the idea that, you know, the formation of our very, the very core of who we are, you know, in terms of like, you know, chemically speaking, can be impacted by trauma of, of, of our forebears, you know? So, yeah, he, again, I, I keep saying this, but it's true. I mean, Reich really was very much had his finger on the pulse of a lot of really fascinating concepts that would later be given a lot more, you know, kind of credence and, and taken a little more seriously. Mm -hmm. And he does have another run-in with his former mentor, Sigmund Freud, in 1930, he meets, uh, he meets Sigmund again, and he says, old Doc Freud is kind of looking like a caged animal to me. Mm -hmm. And he felt uh, that he's he had now, sort of sold out. Right. He's looking at his old uh, authority figure, not with the eyes of a young up-and-coming psychoanalyst, but now with the eyes of a revolutionary, right? Uh, some would say a sexual revolutionary. 
That's the last time yeah. I'm going to say. I'm it's okay. No, pronounce no, it say, the regular say, way for the rest. Say of it every time. time. That is the only way to pronounce it at this point. Um, I, I I fully support you. But yeah, I mean, he like like we said at the top of the show. I mean, he more or less did kind of come up with this concept, the idea of the sexual revolution. He actually did coin that phrase um, mm. very very early on to kind of be this catch-all for all of those forms of repression societal repression that, that that targeted sexuality and the idea of sexual identity and the revolution would be a way of of not necessarily it's not like some orgiastic you know thing exactly it's not like free love or whatever like it would maybe be more right. associated with in the in the 60s but it was about freeing yourself from those kind of shackles because he really felt that a lot of these sexual, as did Freud. I mean, we know that mm-hmm. Freud's whole deal was, you know, was anal cocaine. retention yeah. and right, right. Was the idea of, 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 of being repressed by, uh, by the sexual desires and it causing problems and, you know, falling in love with your mother and all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but Reich took it a step further. And I would argue he kind of got it a little bit more. I think so. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I agree with you. I think so, Noel, because Reich said something that a lot of people weren't willing to admit, but it's something that, at least from my perspective, is absolutely true. He said, hey, sex is part of life. And it's kind of dumb to ignore that. And I believe, says Wilhelm Reich, that uh, having a good orgasm can make you feel better. He goes a little bit further than I just did with that statement. He says it can make the difference between sickness and health. And he starts saying it is a panacea for not just any psychological issues people are having, but physical issues as well. And he basically thinks if more people are having more pleasurable physical experiences then it'll help fight fascism. So again, like you were just saying, Noel, when he says sexual revolutionary or sexual revolution, he is talking about revolution in geopolitical terms. That like that's it's you free the body and then you know you free the body politic basically. Hey, that's good. Uh, that's very true. And the stakes couldn't have been higher, right? You know, in Germany at this time, I mean, the youth were being completely indoctrinated uh, into this Nazi, um, you know, ideology, which was one based on repression and hate, even though it sort of preached the idea of like, oh, liberation through uh, purity of of blood and like, let's get rid of anyone that opposes us. And like, you know, this idea of like, we are uh, so powerful as, as these Aryan brothers and all of this stuff. But it really was just an aggressive form of of repression and and indoctrination. That's right. Tensions are building. In 1927, Wright comes out with a paper called The Function of the Orgasm, and he says that a lack of full and repeated sexual satisfaction leads to neuroses. And he's trying to reconcile the school of thought that we would call psychoanalysis and the school of thought that we would call Marxism. And he says that this repression is a curable condition. You can get rid of a lot of problems that you would not think are uh, sexual in nature. You can get rid of them through better sexual activity. 
people don't like this. They they call it uh, <laughs> you you can see how this is red meat for the press, right? They they call it a genital utopia, and this is back when people were using the word utopia correctly and unattainable, inherently unattainable paradise. Uh, they also call him the prophet of bigger, better orgasms. Uh, he gets kicked out of the Communist Party. He gets kicked out of psychoanalysis. He still is an important figurehead in both Berlin and Vienna which means the Nazi party on the rise will have their eye on him. And given that Reich has Jewish heritage and given that the Nazis are monsters, they see him as a figurehead of a conspiracy, a cabal that for some reason wants to upend or undermine European society. His book's start getting burned, along with the works of his one-time mentor, Sigmund Freud. Things are about to get hairy, folks. This is where we end part one of this series. And, uh, I, you know, no, I think we tease a little bit about part two. Like, we're, we're stopping in media rest here in the middle of the story. We're definitely at a bit of a cliffhanger where things get real uh, in terms of the Nazis, you know, coming for Reich. This is really only the beginning. We are going to see Reich develop his philosophies and his sort of more out there uh, psychoanalytical, you know, modalities into a full-blown, I don't know how you describe it, Ben, school, society. Uh, it really is something movements? along the lines of yeah, movements. Yeah. But it really is something along the lines of what, you know, um, a much hackier uh, figure in um, in L. Ron Hubbard did with Scientology, but we're going to see the full formation of this, um, all of the culmination of all of these ideas coming together with the idea of orgone energy, which we already kind of teed up a little bit at the very beginning of the show. And you may see a connection there uh, with the word orgone and the idea of the function of the orgasm uh, and this notion that that uh, Reich was really focused on this energy that was contained within the body and where does it go? What can you do with it? Those are questions we're going to answer, at least in terms of you know Reich's uh, and many other great thinkers' opinions on, on those um, in the next episode. Yeah, and <laughs> we'll also, uh, just for funsies, get into the etymology of the word orgasm. Pretty fascinating stuff, folks. We can't wait for you to be a part of the show. Thanks, as always, to our super producer, Mr. Max Williams. Thanks to our composer, Alex Williams. Uh, thanks to Dylan Fagan, who inspired Max to make such a cool sound cue. Honestly, dude, was, I really enjoyed that one. It's good to do. Yeah. Dylan. Dylan. It's Dylan. Yeah, it's Dylan. Oh, yeah. You guys know who's here? Oh, he's my friend. Good guy. Master of Funk. Wow. Oh, yeah. Dylan. I sent a message to Andrew Howard, producer of uh, Saver, on Friday. I was like, yeah, this is what happens when you let Max produce uh, Ridiculous History on a Friday. He just gets weird and starts singing. Yeah. I love that Friday punchy Max energy. I live for it. So, you know, obviously, huge thanks to super producer Max Williams and brother Alex Williams, who composed this theme. Christopher Asiotis, who we got to hang out with in the flesh. 
Ben and I, we were just in, uh, where were we, Ben? Dallas at a podcast movement. Um, and I think we may have arm twisted old Christopher into getting himself a, a microphone so we can have him on the show more often. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I threatened him. I'm not above saying it. Uh, so also thanks to uh, the ongoing threat to ridiculous history, Jonathan Strickland, a.k.a. the Quister. Uh, and thanks to, you know what? We're not going to say thanks to Willem Reich yet because his story is not over at, at this point. And of course, we want to give a big shout out to all the psychologists and psychiatrists and therapists listening along today. Some of this story may be familiar. Uh, we can't wait to hear your take on, on the story of Wilhelm Reich. Let us get to part two. And let us know what you think over on Facebook, where we're Ridiculous Historians. That's right. You can find us there. You can find, uh, we're working on getting some uh, some show-level social media happening on the gram. But in the meantime, you can follow me uh, exclusively on Instagram, where I'm at Brown. Ben, I believe you got a couple of presences uh, on the World Wide Web's. It's true. Yeah, uh, I classed up Instagram. You can find me in a burst of creativity being called at Ben Bullen, B-O-W-L-I-N. On Instagram, I recently discovered cheese-flavored ice cream. I'm going to be trying that out, so go to my Instagram. Uh, you'll get the results as I do, folks. Wish me luck. But uh, fortune flavors the bold. Hashtag no pun left behind. You can also find me on Twitter, where I'm at HSW. What's the big deal about Twitter, Ben? You might be saying, well... The big deal about Twitter, folks, if you're in the know, is that that is one of the few places on the internet where you can find Mr. Max Williams. Yes, and you can only find me in very specific parts of Twitter, such as, uh, you know, trolling Ben on his uh, tweets. So you can find me there, or you can find me at, at ATL underscore Max Williams. All right, we're going to psychoanalyze ourselves uh, and, and have a quick check-in before we get to part two, right? No? Anybody else? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready. I got my chaise uh, standing by. We'll see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride in the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity. And the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The joy they brought to the nation. 
You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.